chapter 13 tonight. And uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25. Now, as you find your place there, I'd remind you of what's sort of transpiring here. Children of Israel are standing at Kadesh Barnea on the cusp of, of Canaan, of the promised land, of the place of God's desire for them as a people. Uh, but before they go into the land, God instructs Moses to send out 12 spies to go and search the land out. And so they've spent 40 days going through the land and looking at it, uh, surveying it, gazing upon it. Uh, we are told in Scripture that they found there uh, bunches of grapes, clusters of grapes uh, that were so big they had to carry it between two poles uh, as they uh, carried it back. It took two men to carry it. And uh, I don't know if that gets you excited. It don't really me. If it was ribeye steak or something, I'd be a little more excited, I guess. But uh, certainly it was indicative of uh, the bounty of the land and what God had for them. And so they have returned now. And verse number 25 says this. They returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their Side. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Lord, that you would help those that are ministering to our young people tonight. Lord, a message has already been preached and we prayed and asked for your favor and power upon it and want to praise you for how we know you've already worked. Lord, we pray now tonight for the safety and protection of our young people and for the perpetual working of your spirit using the seed that has already been sown. Lord, watering and tending and, and, and digging about and growing that word of God in their heart and mind. I pray, Lord, for those that will preach this week, that you would give them unction, give them power as they preach. Lord, may it not just be a message or a sermon, but may it be truly a word from you spoken to hearts. Lord, and we pray for tonight that you would speak to hearts likewise. Lord, not uh, just on special occasions and special events, Lord, but on a Wednesday night that you'd stir our hearts. Lord, speak to us and deal with us according to thy will. Lord, we want to rightly understand your word and we want it to be richly applied in our lives. Help us to meekly receive it, and uh, and to be grown through it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we read this account of the report that the children of Israel give to Moses, I'm struck by two verses that are given in juxtaposition. They're given right beside each other. I want you to look down at verse number 30. The Bible speaks of Caleb. Now, Caleb is a man, we, we uh, are told his story a little bit later on in Scripture, but up to this point, He's just known as Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and he's a companion and friend of, of Joshua who will go on to lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. 
But this really is where we are introduced to him as an individual, narratively speaking. It says, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, possess the land. He said, let's just go right now. Let's go storm in. Let's go conquer. Let's go possess the land, for we are well able to overcome it. I want you to notice what the other ten spies say back to that report by Caleb. The, the men, verse 31, that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. You know, it's interesting when you think about eyewitness accounts of things. If you've ever had any dealings like with a wreck or anything like that, had an occasion to read police reports or uh, read uh, maybe uh, police reports of a crime that's been committed, it's amazing how a group of people can look at the exact same event transpire but see two entirely different things. When we read about the reports that these men give, it could not be plainer the discrepancy, the difference between the two. Caleb says, we are well able, and the other ten spies say, we be not able to go up against the people. Now, this group of men, there's those twelve spies, and Joshua does not say anything in this passage, but we are told elsewhere that he was uh, in agreement with Caleb, and so there's ten spies that don't want to take the land, and two that believe God and desire to take the land. You probably learned that little song in Sunday school about the good spies and the bad spies. Ten were good, evil, two were good. And, uh, you know, as these men describe this, it is starkly different the way they describe their scenario and their situation. I mean, they're not just a little bit fuzzy on details. Caleb is saying, hey, let's go take it now. We're able to. These men are saying, I don't know what you've seen, but we are not able to. All 12 of these men have seen the same thing. They've looked at the same land. They've seen the same enemies. They've looked at the same fruit. They've looked at the same terrain. But still they come away with two radically different reports from each other. The question we have to ask is this. Why did these two groups of men give these starkly different reports? How is it possible that they see the same thing and walk away with two vastly different impressions? I think we have a little bit of a hint down in verse number 33. The Bible says this. When the men are telling about the things that they saw, they said, there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak. And Anak was a notable giant in uh, Bible days, and, and his sons, his descendants, likewise were giants. And they said, you don't understand, we saw vastly huge men, giants and sons of giants, uh, he says, which come up of the giants. He says, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. I want you to underscore in your mind the phrase they used. They said, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. Now, when you think about the idea of how you view something and, and picture something, there's really not much about it that's subjective. It's pretty much all objective. I mean, there, there is, of course, color blindness. There's uh, general blindness, uh, nearsightedness. But if we're both looking at this same plant here, we should both come away with a different pers or with a similar perspective. But these men said this. When we looked at it and we looked at it from our perspective, we saw something different than what Caleb and Joshua saw. We could say it this way, that they looked at it through a different lens than Caleb and Joshua did. Caleb and Joshua view it this way. God's already given us this land. All he needs is us to go up and take it. God's already defeated our enemies. All he needs is us to be willing to trust him. But these men, instead of seeing God, they see the giants. 
They look and see only the obstacles and not the divine help and hand of God. In fact, we could maybe summarize it in this way. When we look at these men, we see them viewing things through the eyes of fear. The thing that's motivating them is how fearful they are of the obstacles of the land. But for Caleb and Joshua, when they view it, they're seeing it through the eyes of faith. In other words, in your life and in mine, anybody out there tonight, one or two? You ain't, it, it ain't, it ain't the young people. It's young people when you whisper and I fuss at you, but you're adults. Nobody can fuss at you. You can say amen. That'll be all right. In our life, everything that we face, we have a choice as to the lens through which we're going to view it. We can view it through the perspective of fear. What could go wrong? What could mess up? What we are unequipped and ill-equipped to be able to face? Or we can choose to see it through the lens of faith. What God is able to do. What God has said. What God has promised. What God desires out of our life. You see, these two groups of men were looking at the same land, but they were seeing it through different lenses. Here's the question I have for your life and mine tonight. Which lens do we choose to view our life through? Do we live just constantly in anxiety and fear of everything that can go wrong? And I'll be honest with you, humanly speaking, there's always a lot that can go wrong. No man knows what a day may bring forth. Or do we choose to view it through the lens of fear? What does God desire to do? Now I want you to dig into this with me for a few moments tonight. Notice with me, number one, the findings of the company. Now, this really, I think, uh, speaks to the difference here. They, they all 12 agreed on certain things that they saw. Before they ever disagreed in their conclusion, they all agreed in their assessment. There were certain things that are undeniable that even those that didn't have the faith to follow God into the land, even they had to admit. Notice what these three things are. Look at verse 26 with me. The Bible says, They went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word to them and unto all the congregation. Notice this last phrase, and showed them the fruit of the land. I've thought a long while about this. The Bible tells us that uh, the uh, cluster of grapes that they carried uh, had to be carried by two men. Now, you don't have to agree with what I'm about to say, and if I'm wrong, we get to heaven, I'll buy you a corn dog, all right? That's the, but I'm going to guess which two were carrying those grapes. Now, you might not believe this, but I think it's highly likely that out of those 12 men, the two that were carrying the grapes were the two that were most excited to have found them and the two that had every intention of coming back and getting another second helping of them. I think Joshua and Caleb were probably the ones carrying those grapes. And probably as they carry those grapes, as they share the burden, they probably switched off back and forth. Some of them, in, you know, one of them in front for a while, one of them in back for a while, whatever it is. But each man probably had a good deal of time that all they could see was grapes. All they could see was the bounty and blessing of the land. The other men, as they marched and walked, they surveyed the landscape, and they saw all the foes that they had to deal with. But these men saw only the fruit that God desired to provide for them. And here's what everyone came away understanding, that the wealth of the land was desirable. No one would walk away from that survey and say that it was a poor land that didn't provide anything for the people that took it. Can I tell you this? One thing that every Christian I've ever met will agree to, and they may not agree to it with their life, but they'll agree with it to their lips. Every one of them will admit and acknowledge that the will of God is the best thing for our life. 
Everybody will. Everybody will say, hey, living for God is the greatest thing that you can do. I mean, if they if they claim the name of Christ, if they say they're a Bible believer, if they say they're a Christian, everyone will say there's no dispute, there's no disagreement. We would all acknowledge that God's way is the best way and that a man is best served by following the Lord. Now, they recognize this, and yet ten of them still walked away from it. I find that troubling. Look at verse 27. There's another thing that was uh, plainly obvious to them. He says this, And they told him and said, We came unto the land, whither thou sentest us. Now let's pause there. When they went into the land of Canaan, they did not go in there blindly. God had given command to Moses that this was the land that they were to be led into. Not only that, but God had told them what they'd find when they got there. He said it's going to be a land that floweth with milk and honey. Uh, Now, undoubtedly, this is a land that had plenty of livestock and flowed with milk. And undoubtedly, this is a land that had plenty of bees and flowed with honey. But this is also figurative language for the bounty of the land. It's a way of saying it is a rich land. It's not a barren land. It's going to be a land where it's easy to raise uh, crops and cattle and and kids. It's going to be a a land where there's a future and, and a land where you have plenty and a land where you're not having to scratch out a living. It is going to be a desirable place, as he had already said. When they come back to Moses, they say, you know, we went, we, we came unto the land whither thou sinnest, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. You know what they learned whenever they went, when they looked at their life and looked at the situation before them? The first thing that they were all convinced of was that the wealth, the wealth of the land was desirable, that what God desired for them was what was best. You know the second thing they learned? They learned that the word of the Lord was reliable. They didn't have any debate, any dispute about it. They came back and said, you know, it's exactly as God said that it would be. The Word of God is the very foundation and fountain of biblical faith. The Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If a man has faith in something and he doesn't have Bible to back it up, he does not have faith, he has fantasy. He does not have biblical faith, he has foolhardy trust. But biblical faith is based upon the truth of the Word of God. Biblical faith is not saying, I desire this for this to be true, so I'm saying it's true. You can do that. It doesn't change anything. Uh, but biblical faith is saying, God said this is so, and I take God at His Word, and I believe God to be true. I believe He is not a liar, and I trust that His Word is accurate. You know, they found when they actually looked at it that everything that God had said was true. I'm going to venture a second guess tonight. Probably everybody that claims the name of Christ would say that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, we would undoubtedly, there's people that are truly born again and saved that their definition of that is not what I would desire it and not what I think it ought to be. And there might be people that would dispute and argue about various things. But probably everybody that says they're a Christian would say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. There's probably not a Christian you'll find that if you were to look at him and say, do you believe God is a liar, would say, well, yeah, sometimes God bends the truth. No, everybody that says they're a Christian is going to admit and acknowledge that the word of God is true, that God is not a liar, and that his word is reliable. So they they both agreed with this. I mean, even the evil uh, reported spies, I mean, even, even they agreed with this. But here was another thing they saw, and this changed everything for them. Notice what they say in verse 28. Nevertheless... Now, there's a lot of neverthelesses that are good, but you don't ever want to nevertheless God's Word, all right? When God's Word says something, it's so, it's true. You just settle on it. It's not up for debate or dispute. But they nevertheless, the Word and the plan of God. Nevertheless, they said, 
the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. They go to give a laundry list of who their enemies would be. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. Here's something that everybody agreed on. And Caleb doesn't speak up and dispute this. They, everybody agreed that the wealth of the land was desirable. That what God wanted for them was a, a rich, blessed thing. That the word of the Lord was reliable. That God keeps His word. That He is no liar. That His word is settled forever. But the third thing they all agreed on was that the warriors of this land were formidable. They all agreed it was going to be an uphill battle. They all agreed that they weren't just going to be able to just walk in and everybody was going to fall down. There was a battle that had to take place. There was a cost that had to be paid. They all agreed, even Caleb. Caleb doesn't say, you're wrong, fellas. They're, they're, they're a bunch of puny people. You're wrong. They're not formidable. I mean, he's willing to acknowledge that if they want the life that God has for them, it's not going to come without a certain measure of effort being put in. They all agreed with that. The question now was simply this. It was a very simple equation at this point. Are we willing to pay the price and are we willing to trust the Lord? There was a group of men that were not. They looked at it and said, you know, God's not lied to us yet, but we're scared because these enemies look, look terrible and, and, you know, we just don't believe we can trust God and we're not willing to risk our lives for what God has for us. And then there were two men that said, if God told us we can have the land, God is not a liar. He's a keeper of His word and we can believe Him and we can follow Him. So we see the findings of the company. But I want you to notice verse 30. One phrase that, that, that Caleb gives, one statement, one sentence. He doesn't wax eloquent. He doesn't get wordy. He stilled the people, verse number 30, before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome. Now remember, he's seen the same things that these other men have seen. He doesn't say, no, there's no enemies in the land, because it'd be naive and, and deceitful to say that. Of course there's enemies in the land. Can I just pause here and make a little bit of an application? If you're going to do the will of God in your life, of course there's going to be enemies. The devil's not going to lay down and let you walk into that land unchecked and unchallenged. If anybody ever told you that there would be no effort needed to live a victorious Christian life, they lied to you. Now, it's true, we don't do anything to procure or secure our salvation. We don't earn it. There's nothing we do that, that, that safeguards it. All we do is put our faith in Christ. Christ does the saving. Somebody say amen to that. We don't save. We don't help save. We just let Him save us. That's all that we do. But when you get born again, you now have a choice. Are you going to live a life of of defeat and disobedience and discouragement and waste? Or are you going to live a life where you're obedient to the Lord, where you're striving to see your life live for the glory of God, and you're striving to see God be well pleased with the way that you live your life? You have a choice just like they had. Caleb doesn't dispute that. But he simply says, we better go and take it. We're able to take it. God will let us take it. And fellas, I vote that we take the land. That's what he said. We see in this phrase the faith of Caleb. They saw the same thing, but Caleb chose to react and respond in faith. What did that do for him? Well, notice his, his, his statement here, and let's just pick it apart for a moment. Notice the first thing he says, let us go up at once. Now, don't take for granted what your Bible says. Caleb could have very easily just said, well, let's go up when we get around to it. That's how some of us are. <laughs> 
Uh, he, he could have said, and, and the Bible could have recorded this, and I don't think it would be inaccurate or doing disservice to it. He could have simply said that Caleb said, let us go up. He certainly did say that. But the Holy Ghost is very careful to record for us meticulously what Caleb says. Let us go up at once. Now, what did Caleb's faith do for him that, that these other men, their, their fear did not do for them? Well, I've noticed, number one, he saw the urgency of serving the Lord. He said, there's no time to wait, fellas. Let's go right now and take the land. The other men were content to him and haul around and debate and dispute and strategize and figure out a different route. But for Caleb, he understood that time was of the essence. Now, why was that? Well, I would say for two reasons. One, he knew that their courage would fail. Did you notice how it says in verse 30, Caleb stilled the people before Moses? That implies to us that as these men are giving this report and saying, you don't understand, there's giants and there's battles and there's walled cities, that the people begin murmuring and speaking amongst themselves and debating and disputing. And Caleb just sort of pushes all that crowd around and sort of just bangs his fist down and, and says, everybody sit down, everybody hush, I've got something to say. You know why that was so necessary? Caleb could see this situation spiraling out of control. He could tell that fear was gripping men's hearts. He could tell that if he didn't say something now, the cause would be lost. Caleb understood this, and he's a man of battle, he's a man of war, and he understood instinctively that cowardice spreads like a disease. If we allow it to fester and foster, if we indulge that, and if we encourage that, then it doesn't take much in the human spirit to yield completely to anxiety and fear. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna keep from digging into the past two years. Suffice it to say, we've seen as a society how addictive and infective fear can be. It's possible to take all of society in your grips through. It's possible to strip things away from people that they once held dear. Fear is a dangerous thing. And he knew that their courage would fail. If these men kept talking, he knew it wouldn't be long. Nobody would be willing. Go in, but he knew a second thing. He knew their courage would fail, but he also knew that faith was the cure. He understood that what was needful for a heart that was fearing was to lean, to recline itself upon the promises of God and go forward trusting the Lord. Can I tell you, you're never going to enter a moment in your life when serving God is not scary. There will never be a time when it will not be a fearful thing to step out in faith and trust the Lord. But if you're going to do it, sooner or later, you're going to have to step out and trust Him. Caleb understood this was the moment. Not two hours from then, not two days from then. Right at this moment, they were at inflection point, at a crisis moment. And he said, now's the time. We choose to either go forward or we choose to go backwards. We can't stand where we're at. I would say in your life and mine, when we are faced with a choice of serving God, it's not a time to hem and haul. It's not a time to idle about like those idle words that the Lord speaks about in the book of Matthew. But rather it's a time to mortify the flesh and go forward trusting the Lord. Now, I'm not asking you to throw caution to the wind, but I am asking you to throw your confidence on the Lord. This wasn't a blind leap out into the dark. They already had the Word of God on it. They knew what God wanted of them. They knew what God expected. This wasn't them sort of attributing to God some desire or plan for their life that God had not sanctioned. This wasn't just them sort of, uh, you know, uh, bestowing upon Him an endorsement of their wishes and their will. They knew the Word of God. They knew what God wanted. But in this moment, their fear is seeking to engulf it. And now they must choose. 
And Caleb knows if I give them long to debate and dispute about this, their flesh will win the day. They just need to go on and serve the Lord. He saw the urgency. Notice number two, his next phrase. He says, let us go up at once and possess it. That's an interesting thing to say. Wouldn't you think that'd be sort of a given, right? We're not going to go up and survey it. We just got through doing that, right? We're not going to go up and toilet paper it. We're going to go up and possess it. And yet he makes the statement nonetheless. What's he trying to emphasize? Well, I think his faith caused him to see the urgency. But number two, his faith caused him to see the bounty of going with God's plan. He says, all that that we saw, that could be ours if we would just trust the Lord. He saw, number one, the result of trusting God. But this was not just a, a temporary thing. It would be their land. For 40 years, the children of Israel would go on to wander. But even at this point, for two weeks, they had been a wandering people. For 450 years, they had no home except the home of their masters in Egypt. And now they had a chance at a real home, at a real place, at a real future. And they're balking because there's giants in the land. He says, you need to understand, we can possess this land. This can be our land if we'll have the courage to seize this moment and trust the Lord. But then not only that, he saw the richness of trusting God. He said, we're not going to become paupers by trusting the Lord. We're not going to become beggars by trusting God. If we'll just trust God, He'll give us this land, and then that will be our riches, our wealth, our plenty, if we'll just trust the Lord. Faith is always this way. This is the reason faith can see things that fear cannot see. Fear sees things that are not there, though they may seem to be. Faith sees things that are there, though they seem not to be. And you think about what these men are doing in viewing this scenario and situation. They're seeing giants where Caleb is seeing corpses. Caleb is seeing a home where they're seeing a grave. They're looking at the same thing, but he saw the bounty, the possibility, the potential of what God could do in it. And fear will always look at how things could go wrong. Always look at how things could go sideways. Faith will look in a place where it is endorsed and sanctioned by God's Word. It will look at it and see what God has promised. I see he saw bounty through this, but not only that, he saw the victory through this. He says, we are well able to overcome. That's very different from what they get ready to say. They get ready to say we'd be not able. He doesn't say we'd be able. He says we'd be well able. He says it ain't even going to be close. We'll trust God and go forward. God will give us a, a, an authoritative, resounding victory if we'll just simply trust Him. They could see no path forward. But faith saw a path forward where fear could not see one. And I'll just tell you how your fear works and my fear works. It closes the walls in around us in a situation. It limits the possibilities of what can transpire and take place. But faith, again, biblical faith, based on the Word of God, not fancy, but faith, looks forward and sees and dreams at the possible ways that God could open doors and change situations. We'll never really master this because we could never really mine the heart and mind of God in the way that I wish we could. Because I'm going to tell you something. I've seen God do things in situations. I've had situations where I've said, Now, Lord... I'm up against it. I don't know what to do, but I'm praying that you'll do something. And I want you to do A, B, or C. And God comes in and does seven. I'm like, I wouldn't have even guessed that that's how God was going to do that. Faith recognizes and acknowledges that God has resources we don't have. 
God has wisdom we can't fathom. And it enables us to see the victory because we don't have to look at the strategy. We just have to look at the source. We don't have to look at the battle plan. We just have to look at the commander and know that he is well able. I see the faith of Caleb. And finally, I see the fear of the carnal. Let's just look at this quick and then we'll close. Verse number 31. The Bible says, but the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Now, you can dispute what I'm about to say, but I believe every man, when they first left Kadesh Barnea before they went in the land, I think every one of them was a believer about God's plan. I don't think they would have gone. The men that, that went were, were chosen from amongst the people, and no doubt they had some say. No doubt if a man hadn't wanted to go, he wouldn't have been you know, asked to go. And, and these men, they, they went because they believed that God was going to give them victory. But something changed. They see the foes, they grow intimidated, and now they don't believe that God can do it. You know what it tells me? It tells me that their fear robbed them of something. We often think about the things that fear secures for us, things that fear protects for us. I was reading, and this is another message for another time, but I was reading in the book of Matthew today when our Lord talks about a, a, a man that, that you know, will uh, save his own, uh, you know, life and, and you know, uh, in, in doing so uh, will forfeit his own soul. And, and, and the language that the Lord Jesus uses there when he talks about saving your life, it's not saving it in the sense of, of rescuing something that's about to perish, but it's saving in the sense of preserving. In other words, crowning, deifying our life, and not just our life in the sense of our health and well-being, but our life in the sense of our autonomy and our authority, crowning that, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, securing that, building a fence around that and structuring our life so that nothing can touch that. In doing so, we lose what life that God has meant for us to live. And I think about these men. There were certain things they thought their fear was putting a fence around them and fencing out the enemies. But really all it was was building a prison that kept them from the things that God desired for them. And it robbed them of some things. What did it take from them? I'd say, number one, it robbed them of their valor. They left saying, God's going to let us beat these enemies. But they come back and they say, they are stronger than we. How'd that happen? Well, how does fear work? Notice a couple things here. One, notice the half-truth that disturbed them. They say this, we be not able to go up against the people. That's not what Caleb said. I would say this, in a sense, they are right about that. Certainly it's proven later on for them. They try to go up against an enemy that God has not sanctioned for them to go up against, and they get whooped. Certainly they're not able to. When they finally get into the land, because the disobedience of Achan at the, at the falling of the city of Jericho, they go out against a little city called Ai and, and get, get slaughtered as a result. They in and of themselves absolutely were not able to fight these battles. They say this, they are stronger than we. That certainly, in a sense, was true. You know how fear works? It picks up on something that has a truth in it. Uh, your fear will come to you and say, well, now, you're not cut out for what you're about to do. But can I be honest for you? Ain't, no, ain't none of us cut out for what the Lord desires for. If we were, God wouldn't have called us to it. God's not, in, God's not recruiting a baseball team. He's not calling people into things that they are well equipped to do uh, because they are a good prospect. That's not what God's interested in. God's interested in calling people to do things for Him that are going to be fit vessels for magnifying His power and ability and majesty. 
And therefore, in a sense, God is not calling those that are, that are well equipped. He's calling those that are ill equipped. He's not calling those that are qualified, but you could say it with me. He's qualifying those that he calls. He's using people in capacities they're not cut out for. Because if they was cut out for him, everybody would look back and say, well, of course he's, of course, you know, he's being successful at this or that. He's cut out for it. God picks men that are not uh, apt at those things. So I see the half truth that disturbed them. Then I see the whole truth that eluded them. Notice how they say this. We, we be not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we. You know, one person they never talk about in that verse is the Lord. They never say whether the Lord is stronger than the Canaanites or the Canaanites stronger than the Lord. So fear will seize on a half-truth and magnify the deception of it instead of seizing on the whole truth. And that's what they should have done. They should have said like Caleb, yeah, we're not able, right, if it's just us, but we're not going up there and it'd be just us. We're going to trust the Lord to give us a victory. And so it robbed them of their valor. Notice number two, it robbed them of their value. All these men went on this mission because they believed that Canaan was worth it. Notice what it says in verse 32. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying the land which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Have you ever had a high opinion of a place till you went there? I feel, I feel that way about Golden Corral and Myrtle Beach. You disagree? That's fine. I'll 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 get you a gift card to Golden Corral, and I'll pray for you when you go to Myrtle Beach. But I just, you know, you go to a place sometimes, and your opinion changes about it. I'm not going to launch into a big story. But years ago, I had everybody tell me you need to go to Hilton Head Island. Go to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Oh, you'll love Hilton Head. Oh, go to Hilton Head. You're going to love Hilton Head. I went there. I hated Hilton Head. You like it? God bless you. That's wonderful for you. But I hated it when I went. They, when they leave this place, they're, they're pro-Canaan. They want to go there. They're excited about it. They believe it's worth it. But somewhere between where they left and when they come back, their opinion changed. It robbed them of their values. Faith gives us certain values. Fear gives us certain values. When fear grips our heart, the preservation of the status quo is our only concern. We just don't want anything disrupted. We want things to stay exactly as they are. But faith looks to the promise and the perspective. And it says, imagine what God can do in such a situation. You know what it did? It did two things. One, it gave them a low opinion of the land. They brought an evil report of the land. They used to think much of it. And I'll tell you this, what you think about the will of God will be much dictated by whether you yield to your fear or whether you encourage and embrace faith in the Lord. If you're not willing to see what God can accomplish, of course you're not going to value it. Because God only operates in difficult situations. God does not go for low-hanging fruit. He only deals in scenarios where human intuition would walk away. And therefore, if you're leaning on human intuition, you're always going to say it's not worth it. And they yielded to fear. They said it's not worth it. Not only that, notice this. He gave them a lofty opinion of their lives. Now, why did they say that? They didn't say... It is an evil land because there's no fruit in it. Because they couldn't say that. They was holding the fruit. They couldn't say it is an evil land because it has no water. Because they couldn't say that. They'd drunk of the water. So why was it an evil land? Here's the opinion they give. It is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Can I, can I summarize out what they said there? 
Well, it's a good land, all right. We ain't going to go up there. We're apt to die trying to take over a land. Duh. Of course they were. Can I tell you the, the greatest hazard of war? Death. Can I tell you the greatest hazard of spiritual warfare? Is carnal death. They, it gave them a lofty opinion of their lives. They said, all we can do is protect ourselves. They were willing to die beggars in a, in a wilderness. Uh, 40 years from then, rather than take the risk on dying 40 days from then and dying a plentiful land, wealthy men that had a future for their children. That's the way fear and faith work. It makes us obsessed with maintaining the status quo in our lives. But the problem is the status quo gives no place for faith. It takes no faith to maintain the status quo. It takes no faith to stand still. It takes only faith to go forward. I see it robbed them of their values. And finally, and I'm done tonight, look at verse 33. They said, There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. There's an interesting thing going on here. Uh, Nobody in Canaan, no Canaanites told them they look like grasshoppers. In fact, when they finally make it in the land of Canaan, you remember what Rahab the harlot tells to the uh, men that come and, and, and spy out Jericho, says that all the people uh, of this area, their hearts melt when they hear your cup because we know what great things God has done. But they yielded to their fear. Fear shaped their perspective. Then fear outsourced that perspective to their foes. They looked and said, we are like grasshoppers unto us, so we must be like grasshoppers unto them. You know, the only thing they neglected to do is to say, what do we look like in the eyes of God? You remember whenever in the book of Judges, Gideon is, uh, God calls Gideon to deliver them from uh, the Midianites. And whenever the angel comes to Gideon, uh, whose name, by the way, means a mighty man of valor. That's what the name Gideon means. And the angel comes and finds Gideon. And the Bible says that he was threshing his, his wheat out behind a threshing place, hiding so that the Midianites would not come and steal his wheat from him. And when the angel shows up, this is how he addresses him. He says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. And it, I mean, you don't really say it. You've got to look in the, in the, in the Greek or, or the, you know, Brazilian or whatever, but, but here's what Gideon does. He goes, who? Who? Me? He didn't look like a mighty man of valor, but God saw beyond how he viewed himself. God, when he assesses our life, I want you to listen carefully. This is true for the lost man and the saved man. God always factors himself into the equation when he looks at a man. If you're a lost sinner and he looks at your life, uh, he sees whatever good things that you may have attempted to do, right? But then he looks over and sees Jesus and sees that you don't measure up to him. When a person gets saved, he looks at a man's life and he sees all the wrong that he's done, all the mistakes and all the sin, but then he looks over and he sees Jesus that has been crucified in his place. Likewise, for the saved person, when God looks at your life, he sees all your flaws, all your failures, all your inadequacies, all your infirmities. Then he looks over and he sees Jesus. And he says, he is not able. But this one, my darling son, he is well able. It changed the way they looked at things. And it did two things. It gave them a diminutive perspective. They looked at themselves and they said, we're not much. Well, that was true. But it really wasn't true in the way that God meant for it to be true. Self-deprecation is not humility. Being down on yourself does not honor God. 
It's not what God is desiring out of our life is for us to all be self-loathing. It's not what God wants. God wants us to rightly recognize our inadequacy, but that to be the catalyst for us to turn and lean upon Him. He does want us to know we're insufficient, but only because we can then look to Him who is all-sufficient. God takes no sadistic pleasure out of us thinking we're small in our own sight, except that we might turn to Him and see how large He is and how capable He is. And not only that, it gave them a deceptive perspective. <laughs> they, they said, this is how they view us. But that wasn't true. Fear always deals in half-truths. It tells you half of what's true. But it won't tell you the whole truth. Because when the whole truth is told to the child of God, there is no cause for fear, but only for faith. So the devil has to traffic in half-truths. If it was a whole lie, he knows that most of us would not swallow it. But he can recruit our flesh as a, as an as a an echo chamber when he deals in a half truth, because we're reminded that some of what he said there is some truth for, and that then is used as a vehicle to assault our confidence in the Lord. But when we see the whole truth, this is why faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, because this book gives us the whole truth, not not just one half. It doesn't give us the the light side to the devil's dark side. It gives us both sides. It gives us the whole truth. Tells us what we are, but it also tells us who God is. It tells us what it is, could potentially go wrong, but it also tells us what by God's promise can go right, and then gives us the choice. And so you and I have the choice tonight. What are we going to live our life by? Are we going to let fear dominate and, and subjugate us, or are we going to choose to trust the Lord about the things we are facing and see what God does in our life? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. Miss Connie's going to come play. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. If He spoke to your heart, meet Him in this altar. You probably have some things you're facing in your life. I'd be shocked if we didn't have some that we're facing some matters that are going to require faith. It took faith to take the land. It couldn't be done through the flesh, and it wouldn't be done with fear. It took faith to take the land. You're facing some things now. Why don't you find a place at this altar and resolve yourself to trust the Lord? Father, I love you. I thank you for the truth of your word. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name with our heads.